Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners, to your creepy Wednesday night tales. And, mates, I have for you three creepy pastors hot off the press and ready for your lovely ears. Your first tale is Children of Woodhaver Park by Certain Shadows, a tale of children with an awful past that haunts those that they meet. And your second tale is The Daring Woods, aka known as the Forest of Screams, where many were murdered or whisked away. But for what? This tale is more of an investigation piece, and I'll include links in this episode so you can do your own hunting as well. And lastly, Borancho Sariashiki, a classic tale told with a modern mindset, with much of the hallmarks of a traditional Japanese ghost tale. So mate, sit back, turn the lights off and sound up, and let's bring on the creepy. The Children of Wood Harrow Park. My life had recently been plagued by a persistent brought of rotten luck. I'd been terminated from my last job. The weeks spent unemployed were slipping into months despite the stacks of applications I'd filled out. And every credit card I possessed had been maxed out to its limit. Bitterness and self-loathing had poisoned every fiber of my being and left me with an inescapable melancholy that I was starting to believe was incurable. My latest humiliation had been to dig through my wallet for spare change, as a cashier fixed me with a plastered-on smile, and an impatient line grew behind me, only to find out that I still didn't have enough money to purchase a meager amount of groceries. I'd headed to Woodhaver Park afterwards, a local secluded, sleepy stretch of land to clear my head. The park was empty when I arrived, leaving me free to wander the paths alone and aimlessly. Hunger gnawed away at me like a familiar enemy I could never quite shake. In a final indignity, the previously sunny sky suddenly began to pour rain. I, of course, was not carrying an umbrella. I was so absorbed in my own misery that I barely felt the gentle tug on my jacket's sleeve. Looking back, I wished that I kept walking along the park path without so much as glancing downwards. I wished that I'd ignored the soft, silent plea for my attention. I wished that I hadn't made the horrible mistake of believing that a hand with a touch so timid and helpless was incapable of holding the power to be terrifying. But instead, I foolishly stopped in my tracks, and ever since that fateful decision, I have not had a single moment of peace. I looked down to see two children standing at my side, and immediately felt a jolt of unpleasant surprise. Both stood no higher than my waist, one slightly taller than the other, and both were clad in black raincoats that looked more suited for a sepia-toned photograph than a modern-day child. They each wore matching wide-brim hats that drooped atop their small heads and obscured most of their faces. 
though I could vaguely discern that the taller one of the pair was a boy and the shortest a girl. I was unable to see any features above the pallid flesh of their swollen cheeks. Their lips were so colourless that it appeared as if they had little more than a thin white sliver for a mouth. The children's bodies were round without any of that cherubic softness associated with youth. Rather, they looked unnaturally bulbous, bloated to the point of near grotesqueness. Unbrushed tufts of stringy blonde hair jutted from beneath their hats like tangled straw, dry as a brittle bone, and seemingly untouched by so much as a single drop of rain. Hello, I said, forcing myself to sound upbeat. They stared up at me in silence. The girl continued to cling to my sleeve. Are you okay? I asked. By now I was drenched and eager to head back to my car. Do you need some help? But the pair remained mute. I stood there awkwardly unsure of what to do, when the girl suddenly began to grip my arm with a startling strength that made me worry she would pull me to the ground. Alarms rang loudly through my brain. I felt an immediate urge to extract myself from her unsettling grasp and leave them both behind in the rain. Well, I warily pulled my arm away, somewhat embarrassed for being afraid of how the pair would react. If you don't need anything, I guess I'll be on my way. She released her hold on me without protest, neither said a word as I walked away. When I turned around for a final look of parting, I saw that they were still staring at me, though I could not see their eyes. I felt their gaze follow me, with an intensity that disturbed me no matter how much distance I put between us. I didn't look back again. I picked up my pace and dug my keys out of my pocket. The rain fell as cold as ever. I unlocked my car and was thinking about the can of chicken noodle soup I had left in my spares pantry when I noticed that the girl had left behind the stain on my sleeve. As dark as ink and shaped like her tiny fingers, I wiped at it with my thumb. But the mark didn't budge. I sighed and looked up, only to nearly stumble backwards in shock when I saw the back seat door open and the girl sitting inside. She'd removed her hat and was holding it in her hands, both of which were clean despite the mark on my jacket, with her head bound and her knotted hair concealing her face like a curtain. Hey! I tried to keep my tone from betraying how unnerved I was and failed spectacularly. What are you doing in here? She sat as wordless as before, tightly squeezing and twisting the brim of her hat with such violence that I was certain she would rip it apart. I swallowed my uneasiness. Look, I said as calmly as I could manage. If there's something wrong, I can't help you if you don't tell me what it is. I reached into my pocket and pulled out my phone. Maybe it's better if I call the police and you can tell them. My voice trailed off as I watched my phone screen flicker on and off before collapsing into a scramble of pixels and shutting down entirely. I stared again at my reflection in the black screen as a terrible feeling of dread began to wash over me. When I looked back up, the girl was gone. In her place rested her hat. The hat appeared soaked, every bit as saturated with rain as my own clothes were. 
but unlike the jacket and jeans that clung to my skin and chilled me to the bone. The hat didn't feel wet when I picked it up with a trembling hand. It was dry to touch, even as I watched beads of rain drip from its brim and onto the car's upholstery. I realized with something between fascination and horror that the raindrops left behind no traces where they landed. And when I cupped my hand beneath the hat to catch the drops in my palm, I felt nothing but air. Furthermore, the back seat was completely dry. There were no damp footprints, no water spots, nothing at all to indicate that a girl wearing a coat glistening with rain had been sitting there mere seconds ago. I turned to fling the foul thing into the parking lot and gasp out aloud when I saw the boy standing only a few feet away. She forgot her hat. I said dimly, my heart thundering madly in my chest. My mind screamed at me to jump into the car, to drive off as fast as I could and never come back to Woodhaver Park again. But it was that same fear that left me rooted to the spot. Paralyzed and helpless, even as the boy stepped ever closer towards me. Stop it! I wanted to scream, but my tongue felt too thick to form the words. The boy lifted his hand. A burst of darkness erupted in my eyes. Blinding me as a hellish symphony assailed my other senses, I could neither see nor move as I felt insects scuttling behind my eyes and scales slithering inside of my skull. The vile taste of putrid water filled my mouth as the deathly scent of rot flooded my nostrils. Final breaths rattling in dying throats, drowning bodies thrashing in water as they sank. Screams of agony so shrill that they sounded inhuman. I heard them all and many hideous more. I stood frozen in the terrifying darkness as the rain furiously slashed at my flesh like cold blades, unable to weep or let out a watery cry for help. Suddenly, I felt someone grab hold of my hand and pull me free from the loathsome trance, just as abruptly as I had been consumed by it. My vision returned as I saw that I was now alone. Even the girl's hat had disappeared. I drove into my car and sped away from Woodharrow Park. The sky grew clearer with every mile. When I got home, I peeled off my wet clothes and climbed into the shower. I sat there beneath the hot spray, immersing myself in the steam and the warmth, and jumped out the instant it turned cold. I dried off and crawled into my bed, burying myself beneath the blankets as my mind raced with the nightmare I had endured. I wondered if the children, whoever they were, had somehow been drawn to the despair I would felt as I walked through the park. Perhaps my hopelessness and sorrow had served as a miserable beacon, guiding them towards me and leaving me vulnerable to their presence. There was one thing I knew for certain. It was the girl who had rescued me. I'd known it the second I felt her small hand touch mine. I realized now that she hadn't climbed into the car to frighten me. She had only wanted me to stay with her in the park. Tears slid down my cheeks as I thought of her being forced to forever wander, would have her with no one but a boy who carried hell beneath his hat to keep her company. Maybe she too had once visited the park, 
while bearing a sadness as heavy as my own, only to wind up imprisoned by it. I slept fitfully. When I awoke the following morning, I discovered that the stain on my coat sleeve has somehow bled onto my arm. I spent hours trying to wash it off, scouring my flesh until it grew angry and raw, but the mark refused to be cleansed away. I sat on the floor of my bathroom, gazed down into the imprint of the girl's fingers on my reddened skin, and felt the horrid chill of Woodharrow's rain creep down my spine. That was last week. The mark still remained on my arm. And at night I toss and turn and vividly dream of the park. I told myself repeatedly that I can't go back there, that I was lucky to have made it out alive and might not be so fortunate again. But I can't stop thinking about the girl. I pity and fear her in equal measure. When it rains, I look out the window and wonder if I'll see her outside, waiting for me, clutching her hat and bowing her tangled head. The thought both saddens me and terrifies me. So I've made a decision, and perhaps I'll live long enough to regret this one too. As soon as I've finished posting this, I'm grabbing my car keys and driving to Woodharrow Park. I know that I might be walking towards my own doom. I know that the marks on my arm are likely a bad omen. I know that the girl may be every bit as malevolent as the boy. And that she may be trying to lure me into a trap of her own. I know that there's a strong chance I'll never be able to come back and tell you what happened. But I can't keep reliving the same nightmare over and over again. In a way, I never truly left Woodharrow. My mind wanders its paths, even as I hide away in my home. I've got to go now. Wish me luck. I have a feeling it's going to rain. The Deering Wood Massacre the Deering Woods, also known as Screaming Woods, are situated in Kent, between the villages of Smarden and Pluckley. They are reputed to be the most haunted woods in Britain, and they were given their name because of their many reports of people hearing terrifying screams coming from the forest at night or footsteps and whispers during days of fog. The forest is said to be haunted by the ghosts of the people who get lost in them. In particular, the locals mention a suicidal army colonel of the 18th century and a highwayman who was captured by the villagers, pinned to a tree and beheaded. Many from the nearby villagers swear to have seen black shadows following them while they were traveling across the forest. The wood is also famous for presenting one of the oldest Neolithic sites in the world. Scientific Research British psychiatrist B. Josephson has studied the phenomenon for years during his research at Cavendish Laboratory for the Mind Matter Unification Project, documenting everything in the peer-reviewed paper Quantitative Measurement of Decoherence, a link between consciousness and group-theoretic characterization of the hyperplanes of existence. In a recent interview, he criticized the skeptic approach of many scientists. The trouble is that the scientific community is not aware of these results, because very little of this work is published in journals like Nature and Science and the work is often ridiculed when it's published in respectable physics journals. He cites the example of a paper on quantum mechanics by Henry Stump, 
of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory that contained a reference to parapsychology. Physicists have an emotional response when they hear anything connected with parapsychology, he says. Their opinion of parapsychology research is not based on evaluation of the evidence, but on a dogmatic belief that all research in this field is false. Accounts of the Deeringwood Massacre The woodland has been the center of attention for this phenomena for many years. On the morning of November 1st, 1948, 20 people from the Maltman's area were found dead, 11 of whom were children. The bodies were forming a massive pile of human flesh, and they didn't present any wound. Many reported seeing strange lights coming from the forest on the night of Halloween, when the massacre took place. The autopsies couldn't determine the cause of death, and after a few weeks, the local authorities quickly ended the investigation, stating that the cause was carbon monoxide poisoning. This behavior raised questions about a possible involvement of the police in the matter at the time. In 1964, private investigator Robert Collins conducted in-depth witness interviews designed to uncover hints about the alleged activity of an unknown religious cult in the village of Smarden. His research stopped after he died in a tragic car accident the following year. The Deeringwood was home bore another mystery when, on October 1998, on the same night of 50 years before, four college students who were visiting the forest went missing after people from Pluckley reported seeing figures of light similar to spiderwebs in the sky. Their bodies were never found and after three weeks, the police investigation stopped. I'll include references and material evidence in my notes. A report from the weekly newspaper, Tuesday, November 2nd, 1948. 20 dead bodies found in the woods. Massacre in the Daring Woods, five families killed, the cause of death is unknown. Smarden, at approximately 8 o'clock a.m. on Monday, notification was received through the Ashford 999 Center, 20 bodies discovered by a hunter near the Smarden Bell Road in the middle of Daring Wood. The bodies were identified as belonging to the members of five families living across the Maltman's Hill. They were piled up one on the other in a way that suggests the involvement of more than one killer. Officers from the Ashford Police Station, assisted by Detective Chief Inspector Cornell Murray, are investigating the area right now. No wounds were found on the bodies and the cause of death is still unknown. We are waiting for the autopsy, though we can already state that they died just hours before the discovery. Today we'll start questioning all the people living around the area, said DCI Murray. This tragic discovery could be linked to the still unexplained phenomena of lights coming from the forest that many people witnessed the night before the murder. And so ends the mysterious tale of the Deering Woods, aka the Screaming Woods. Burancho Sarayashiki The Sengoku or Warring States period in Japan was the time of a great social upheaval and political intrigue. It was during the Onan War, 1467-1477, that Ayoyama Tesan, the chief retainer of Kotera Norimoto, Lord of the Magnificent Himeji Castle, plotted intrigue against the lordship. No one would have suspected if Okiku, one of Oyama's young maids, had not overheard him discussing his plans with his follower, Chonosupu Genshiro, 
for Lord Cotero held him in high esteem and had even given him a fine mansion within the castle walls and a set of priceless porcelain dishes from Hebei province. Ayama was very pleased with his spacious mansion. He was especially impressed with its protective wooden walls which, like the impregnable castle, was covered with the white plaster for fire protection. He also treasured his new set of dishes which immediately became a valued family heirloom and declared so precious that anyone who broke one risked being put to death. Smitten by the beauty of Okiku, he entrusted the dishes to her safekeeping, which she locked in silk-lined wooden chest. He hoped that by honoring her with his trust, he would win her affections. There were ten dishes in the set, three cups, three saucers, three plates, and a teapot. They were made of the most delicate, translucent, snow-white porcelain she had ever seen. Okiku was indeed honored by Oyama's gesture, but she was not sure of her new master's intentions. He was a famous samurai after all, and far above her station. What could he possibly want with her, other than a fleeting romance? So she steadfastly refused his advances. Besides, she was already secretly betrothed to the handsome young samurai Kinugasa Motonobu. They met every night by the castle's main well, while everyone slept and there pledged their love for one another in the light of the moon god, Tsukiyomi no Mikoto. When she overheard Ayami plotting against Lord Norimoto, she knew in her heart that she was right to have refused him. That night by the well, she told Kinosaga Ayoyame's plans. He vowed to seek an audience with Lord Noritomo. Unfortunately for the young lovers, Aoyama's mother had followed Okiku to see why she was sneaking about the castle in the dark. She scurried back to the mansion and told her son what she had heard and seen. Burning with jealousy and furious that a mere maid would dare defy him, he ordered his mother to remove one of the dishes from Okiku's chest without her knowledge. Terrified of her own life, the old woman bowed herself out the door. When she was out of sight, she relaxed her guard and cackled to herself over how simple a task it would be as female head of the household to steal a dish from one of her maids. Having seen to the maid's demise, Aoyama sent for his faithful follower Chonotsubu and instructed him to keep Kinugasa too busy to report to Lord Noritomo, and if possible, he was to discreetly arrange for him to have a fatal accident. Once his plans were set into motion, he asked to see the dishes. To Okeku's horror, the teapot was missing. Devastated by her own carelessness, the young maid ran out of the castle and wept by the well. She knew the price she would have to pay for losing or breaking one of the mansion's priceless dishes was death. After three days and nights of letting Okeku suffer fear of death and loss of her lover's companion, Aoyama went to her and offered to forgive her if she would become his lover. Knowing that her life would be forfeit if she refused him this time, she threw herself into the well and drowned. In the afterlife, she lived in the well and wandered restlessly throughout the mansion clothed in her white burial kimono. When she learned of Ayama's deception, she became vengeful. Her apparition appeared in the early hours of the morning and hovered over his sleeping form. Then she woke him by slowly counting to nine and shrieking in the most hideous voice. Screaming, where is my teapot, Ayama? She continued to torment the samurai in this way for months until he became so wan and thin from lack of food and sleep that he could barely walk, let alone lift his sword. 
racked with guilt over her hand in her son's misery, his mother devised a plan. She hid behind the screen in his bedroom and waited for Okiku's nightly visitation. When the ghost counted to nine, she jumped out and yelled, TEN! Okiku was so startled by the rude interruption, her mouth snapped shut and she could not open it to shriek. Frustrated, she shook her fist and glared at Ayama, but the old woman stood in front of him and glared back. Go back to your well and stay there, Okiku, she commanded. Just look at poor Ayama. He's not half the man he used to be, and now he's roaming around like one of the living dead. You've had your revenge. Leave us in peace. Okiku listened and nodded, but she was not quite satisfied. She needed one final symbolic act of revenge. She snatched the precious porcelain teapot and disappeared into the well. From that night forward, her sad voice could be heard counting to nine. The locals whisper that if you linger by the well, under a full moon long enough to hear her shriek, you will age nine years and go mad. Many years later, Okiku was enshrined in this city as the goddess of Junisho Shrine. And thus her tale ends. Well, mates, I hope you enjoyed all three of your creepy tales today. Nothing too intense for your Wednesday evening or start to your day. The first tale with the children, what do you think happened to them? Do you think they drowned? A car crash? Perhaps the young girl was warning our protagonist not to drive in this weather. And the darkness he felt from the young boy? Could that have been the feeling of all-consuming death? Hmm. More questions than answers for this tale. I will take note, though, of their bodies. Bloated, and although rotund, they were missing their cherubic qualities. I think they were bloated because they drowned, and he witnessed their swollen bodies. Morbid, but I reckon plausible. What are your thoughts? The second tale regarding the screaming woods. Goodness, I'm going out on a limb here, and I think what's killing the people there, or especially what's causing them to disappear, is actually will-o'-wisps. Ever heard of those, mates? Well, will-o'-wisps are balls of energy usually, often treated as ghostly spirits. Normally, they're tiny. Now, if these things are real, and let's assume they are for the sake of this creepypasta, will-o'-wisps can actually be quite large and monstrous. It depends on the literature and lore. But they can literally wisp people away into another fey dimension. The disappearing of people, children in particular, especially in the woods where no bodies are found, were often attributed to wisps. They are usually harmless and small, but there are cases where this is not the rule, and these wisps could be draining people of their energy, killing them without any clear wounds or possibly asphyxiation. So that's my hypothesis on what took place there in the Screaming Woods. Would you agree or disagree? And lastly, our traditional tale of the Japanese ghost. I really like this one. And goodness, it was a challenge to pronounce all those unique names. Nonetheless, it's great practice. I've been to Japan a couple of times in the past myself, and I've loved it every time. I got a friend there right now. I must say their landscapes, architecture, and of course the food is amazing. But it's their attention to detail is what sets them apart when it comes to art. So regarding this tale, the teapot and the dishes undoubtedly would have looked immaculate in their design, and would probably fetch the same price as the mansion our antagonist lived in. I really enjoyed this one, and I hope you have too. Mates, I just want to say thank you to you for listening, and to the people that keep this podcast growing. My Ode Night Tea Titan 
Maya, who single-handedly supercharges each and every episode with her support. A very special thank you to you, mate, for supporting me at the level you do. And of course, my two epic white tea warlords, Ion Cows and Lee Bauer. Thank both of you, you lovelies, that allow me to flex my creative muscle. Thanks to your support, I get to do really cool and unique episodes. And my Earl Grey Enforcers. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cattini, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, and Tea Time Drinker One. Thank all of you so much for loving this show enough to show me some love. Now, if you're thinking, mate, I'd love to be a legend like these awesome people and help the show grow, visit www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT, where you can send dollary dues my way to help out. And mates, if you have any questions, reach out to me via email at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com and you'll be sure to hear from me directly. This Friday, I'm going to continue with our true crime story on Futoshi Matsunaga, focusing on the terrible crimes they committed during their time on the run from the police. So join me then, mates, and as always, till next week.